This is Zealous, an in-depth look behind the scenes of legal matters straight from the attorneys of Gimbel, Riley, Garen, and Brown. Welcome to Zealous. I'm your host, Brianna Meyer, and this is the place to immerse yourself in the legal world. Today, we're discussing the First Amendment and the freedom of speech with Jorge Fergoso. Jorge is an associate and new addition to Gimbel, Riley, Guerin, and Brown. Before joining GRGB, Jorge spent years representing indigent clients at the State Public Defender's Office. He has worked on juvenile cases, emergency detentions, protective placements, guardianships, and cases involving children in need of protective services and termination of parental rights. Jorge was raised in Mexico and is bilingual. He attended the University of Notre Dame, from which he earned a Bachelor's in Arts from the Program of Liberal Studies. After graduating from college, Jorge worked as a substitute teacher, a Spanish teacher, and a rare bookseller at Better World Books before going to law school. As I mentioned, Jorge is one of our newer attorneys at the firm, and he has just slipped into his role so well. Jorge is always down to brainstorm and bounce ideas around, and is just a person I genuinely enjoy talking to. He's got a wealth of knowledge, and that definitely includes on today's topic of the First Amendment. Well, the First Amendment uh, has been, I would say, in the headlines for a very long time of people claiming they have First Amendment rights, of people combating other people's First Amendment rights. So I think it's important that we break down what exactly the First Amendment is uh, and what it does and does not cover. All right, you want to start us out with what even is the First Amendment? It's a term that gets thrown around a lot. What does it cover? Well, the First Amendment's the First Amendment to the Constitution. The First Amendment uh, constitutes the first... um, Right protected in the Bill of Rights, and it has a specific text, and that is that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people's peace, people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. So there's a number of protections there. Obviously, there's... Um, the two religion ones, the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. Uh, And then there's the freedom of speech, the freedom of the press, and the freedom to assemble. So most of the time when people are talking about the First Amendment in the context of speech, um, they're really talking about what they can or can't say or what consequences they can or can't suffer based on what they've said. each of these rights is important in its own way, but I think that that's most of what we're focusing on right now. Yeah, and I I do think in general, when people talk about the First Amendment, and maybe this is just me, but colloquially, they're talking about the freedom of speech. I think that if they're specific about freedom of religion, they focus on that in particular, and they don't necessarily use the term First Amendment. Right. I think that's fair. Yeah. So, you know, it does prohibit government intrusion onto certain things, but I think a lot of people think this is a blanket. You can say whatever you want. And that's not necessarily true. (laughs) I think a lot of people use it to protect things that um, 
maybe aren't actually protectable. I think I made that word up, but aren't really protectable under the law. <laughs> right. I think that's fair. I mean, um, the purpose of the Bill of Rights was to create uh, limits on the government. Mm-hmm. And so to the extent that the text of the First Amendment protects you from anything, it's from some kind of government action. You're not protected from any kind of you know, consequence not related to the government based on your speech. I mean, just because you have the right to say whatever you want to say and the government won't intrude on it doesn't mean that you have the right to say what you want to say and you're not going to hurt feelings or suffer some kind of consequence. Um, you know, we, we live in a society and people have all sorts of different ideas about things and what you say often has consequences. The Bill of Rights, the First Amendment, is intended to keep the government from doing certain things that restrict your speech, but it's not supposed to make all speech inconsequential. And you, again, you've mentioned consequences quite a few times, and I think people don't realize that, you know, not only are there consequences in offending your friends, in, you know, potentially facing backlash on social media, but there's also very real both non-criminal and criminal consequences that can happen. I mean, you look at this recent case that came out of the Supreme Court of this girl who posted a Snapchat that said, fuck cheerleading, and then got punished at school. You look at that, and that's an example of something non-criminal, but she got suspended from doing any sort of cheerleading at school. Right, and that's always been uh, sort of a tough uh, a tough issue for school administrators is figuring out uh, to what extent they could limit free speech the, the free speech rights of students to what extent they have the right to free speech they um, I think it was in in the 70s that that the court first found that the um, that students do have some First Amendment protection uh, but that doesn't mean that there's no restrictions on it. As recently as 2007, uh, in the Bong Hits for Jesus case, mm-hmm. um, the Supreme Court found that uh, that court that schools can punish students for off-campus speech if it, uh, in that case, promotes drug use and can cause a disturbance. What happened in that case was uh, some students in an off-campus event um, unfurled a big banner. This was, I forget the, the specific facts of it, but it had to do with the upcoming Olympics, I think. It was some kind of big athletic event, and there were a lot of people there cheering. There was local media around, and uh, these kids unfurled a big 14-foot banner that said, Bong Hits for Jesus. Um, and so the, the, they were punished, and then they took the case to court. I think they lost in the, in the first case, and the Court of Appeals reversed that, and then the Supreme Court reversed that, and ultimately found that, that the school was allowed to restrict student speech to some extent. Um, this was focused on the use of illicit drugs, and that was sort of the, the basis for it. But that was a case that this cheerleading case had to um, distinguish mm-hmm. because this also involved off-campus speech. And there was a question of whether this speech was disruptive enough on campus 
to um, to warrant punishment. So what happened in this case was in the the cheerleader went to tryouts and wasn't chosen, and she got made upset the JV squad instead made, of the varsity squad. Right, and so she got pretty upset, and so she sent the large a Snapchat to a lot of kids mm-hmm. that she went to school with, and she said, "Fuck cheerleading mm-hmm. and fuck this and fuck that." Mm-hmm. And uh, had her middle fingers up for right. everyone to see. <laughs> Guns blazing. Yeah. And uh, the question was, was that disruptive? So, you know, some facts to consider. The fact it was a school-related activity and it was a group of students that she was sending the the message to. Um, But it was speech that was off campus and sort of the uh, added element in this case is that now that there's social media, that so many kids from school have this almost entirely different social life online, uh, can you still draw those lines of being on campus versus mm-hmm. off campus and what type of disturbance is necessary and where does that disturbance uh, need to happen essentially for it to be something that school officials can reprimand? And, you know, this has this has a lot of implications. So the court found that that this was essentially not disruptive enough to warrant right. a punishment. And so she um, she couldn't be punished for it. The thing about these cases that happens often is that they get decided, you know, after the kids have already graduated high school. Right, exactly. They're well out of there. So it's really just to to establish a precedent. Um, But, uh, you know, it could could raise interesting clashes in the future Mm -hmm. um, because in this case it was just kind of um, these nonspecific kind of just vulgarities that the girl was saying. she wasn't inciting anybody. Well, I guess there's a way to read that yeah. where you're inciting people to do things, but <laughs> but she wasn't she wasn't asking for some kind of uprising or any kind of violence, mm-hmm. and she wasn't using names that are termed you know offensive now. She wasn't uh, taking any kind of position on any sort of hot button issues, mm-hmm. and uh, she wasn't bullying anybody. So those right. are really the context where I think a lot of school officials end up stepping up if somebody um, is doing something in particular to a member of, of an oppressed group, an oppressed minority, if somebody uses something that would typically be considered a slur or uh, a derogatory comment, a put down, any kind of bullying really for any reason, but especially with something that's like a hot button issue. Um, what ability do school officials have to punish? At what point do the parents just have to step in and the school officials don't have a role. Um, I think one of the areas we're maybe going to see this play out is recently there's been a string of college athletes losing scholarships, getting their offer rescinded based on social media posts and not even social media posts made in any time in the recent past, but from when they were really young and you know, obviously said things that are not acceptable, but when you're so young and you don't understand that, mm-hmm. how punishable is that, I think is the question. Right, and these are all really hard questions. It's it's hard to know how punishable something is, yeah. but also what, you know, what, what the punishment should be. Mm-hmm. Um, can you punish somebody for something that they said or did if it's long enough ago? And if it's long enough ago, what should that punishment be? Right. Um, I think there was a real question, even among the people who uh, thought, for instance, that that Justice Kavanaugh, 
you know, was, uh, I, I guess, did commit some kind of sexual indiscretion in his past, what should the punishment be? Does that mean he shouldn't be on the court? Is it long enough ago? Has mm-hmm. he atoned for it? Uh, he'd really sort of, you know, by all measures come a long way. He was a coach for girls basketball, mm-hmm. and, right? So what, what do we demand of a person if they have transgressed and how do we decide that so far after the fact, right? right? Because what social media does is it just creates a record of everything. It and preserves so, everything. Right. Everything. So there's no more um, just letting things sort of be in the past mm-hmm. if everything can keep coming up. <laughs> right. And, and for kids these days, I mean, they were born with social media, which is a weird concept for you or I because social media developed as we were developing as humans. Right. Um, but now social media is very sophisticated and these kids are born with it. And you know, things they said when they were 11 are out there and can be used against them. And it becomes a question of, did they even know what they were doing? Were their brains developed enough to know or to understand? Yeah, and I think that we have to, I mean, I've thought this is true for a while, even outside of social media, but I think we have to sort of um, grant a little bit of grace to people and sort of develop our muscles of forgiveness. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because if we just keep setting impossibly high standards to attain, in particular regarding where people once were as opposed to where they are now, it's going to be really hard to have anybody do anything. <laughs> yes, definitely. I was, I forget who I was speaking with, but I mentioned that we're going to reach a point where the individuals running for president, it's going to be weird if something from their past doesn't come out. If they don't have any social media skeletons, then that's going to be considered as well, this person is really dangerous. Right. Or you're only going to accept the people that have so much in their past yes. that nothing matters anymore. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously those are kind of the non-criminal consequences of speech, right? And a lot of it focuses on schools but and students in schools, but there's also, you know, politicians and things like that that face consequences non-criminally, but definitely socially um, and potentially with regards to their employment when it comes to speech. Then there's this whole other side of the freedom of speech and that's when there's potential criminal consequences attached to it. And one thing that comes to my mind right away is my, uh, my dad who used to practice for a long time had a client who was accused of threatening a president. Mm. And you know that ended up being charged criminally in the federal courts. Um, So there are definitely areas where you can get in trouble pretty seriously for what you say. Yes, absolutely. There's there's traditional um, criminal limits on the right to free speech where the government can intrude. And uh, these are always sort of controversial. These are lines that are very hard to draw. All of the tests that they they end up coming up with are not going to be ones that that everybody agrees on entirely but um, as you mentioned there's true threats Uh, people can't make threats and call it free speech Mm -hmm. Um, and then there's a question of what is a true threat and what isn't Mm -hmm. and traditionally there's been other 
restrictions such as obscenity or child pornography mm-hmm. or what we call fighting words, incitement to violence. Um, the test for that at one point was whether something, uh, so incitement to violence is whether something incites or is likely to incite lawless action. But the test was distinguishing between something that presents a clear and present danger, which would be unprotected speech, versus something that simply invites dispute and might cause unrest, which would be protected. And those lines are so... yeah. It's so blurry. It's so yeah. hard to know because these are things that then have to apply to society at large. And mm-hmm. so if you are, say, giving a speech in front of a group or something and you want to make sure that you fire people up uh, but don't bring on any kind of criminal consequences for mm-hmm. yourself, you have to know where to draw lines. And if the lines are that blurry... yeah it kind of empowers um, government actors to draw those lines where they, wherever they want to draw them. And, and that is what ends up restricting speech, and that's what the, that's what the Bill of Rights and the First Amendment was intended to protect against. And so um, we, need a, we need to have... It's, it's important to have a conversation so that we all kind of have similar ideas about where those lines should be drawn mm-hmm. so we could hold our elected officials accountable so that we can all know our rights and not have to guess or leave it up to whatever DA happens mm-hmm. to be uh, elected at the moment. Yeah, and one of those places in Wisconsin definitely where these lines are very unclear is with the child pornography statutes. And I think part of it comes from the fact that They've been revised so many times in a short period of time, so no one really knows, you know, what's applicable and what's not applicable given different time frames and things like that. But also, the definition alone of of what is child pornography, and you know, this isn't an easy subject necessarily to to talk about or or to listen to, but you know, the, arguably under the Wisconsin definition, there are things that are very clearly not child pornography that could fall under the statute. You know, the Nirvana cover art with the floating baby, the napalm girl, things like that. Um, so how how do we go about reconciling protected and very clearly illegal and unprotected in this area? Right. That's, I mean, that's another tough one and and these these tough questions come up when uh when we're talking about you know going up to the lines right and mm-hmm. i think that as you mentioned child pornography is something that probably most people are pretty, pretty far from the line yeah. on. um but we still need to have those lines and draw those lines and enforce them uh but we need people to know where they are mm-hmm. um because you know again more and more of our lives is online right. and when you're when you're online you're almost in unchartered territory the lines there change all the time mm-hmm. uh, much quicker than than our laws do and so i think that with things being very accessible people want to make sure that they're not doing something illegal so right. you know if something like child pornography used to be something that you had to go seek out and use you know illegal mm-hmm. things or get on get on the dark web to find and it seems like you're making some kind of big effort to get to that and now it might be something that you just sort of wander into just uh 
not long ago, I think a few months ago, Pornhub took down a considerable mm-hmm. amount of videos because they decided they wouldn't allow uploads from unverified users anymore. And the concern there was that a lot of the videos were from uh, underage people, underage right. boys and girls. Um, and so there's people kind of complicit in this, right? But Pornhub is just a it's kind of another corporation, another commodity. Mm-hmm. They they advertise and they're just sort of out there, right? So it pretty much reaches anyone. You don't have to go wandering right. into the dark web anymore. Um, and so that's why we need to have some of those lines so that people are aware of what they can and can't do or if they... Mm-hmm. Uh, might start veering close to the line they can stay away Um, so I think that that's that's really important yeah I think kind of the the moral of the story when it comes to the First Amendment is one it's very unclear it's it's not as cut and dry as people think it is and number two you gotta think before you speak I mean there's not really in my mind a better way to put it Right. I mean, there's there's never going to be anything that just removes all consequence from your speech. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's definitely important. There's no uh, there's no defense from you know saying something that's going to hurt people's feelings mm-hmm. or that's going to make people see you differently. If you hold some abhorrent opinion and decide to express it. There's people that are going to be revolted. That's yes. just what it is. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's speaking not just in the old-time sense of using your words and talking to another person right. verbally, but it's in Instagram captions, and it's in Snapchats, and it's in ways that people, I don't think, realize, um, you know, social media is not a, a free-for-all to say whatever you want. Yeah, and I think something really important about that, too, is that speech gets decontextualized on social media. Mm-hmm. And so you say something, if, if you're, say you're on, you're on Facebook or something where, maybe Instagram, where you're primarily interacting with people that you do know mm-hmm. um, in real life. When you say something, people are probably going to put a lot of their experience of you into the thing that you've said. So mm-hmm. they're going to you know, favor you if you didn't quite phrase it right or give you the benefit of the doubt if it sounds a little weird. But if you, say, tweet something and then it gets a mind of its own and goes viral, mm-hmm. all of a sudden you have thousands of people looking at it. You've never met most of them or any of them. And uh, and everybody gets to decide what you actually meant and you no yeah. longer are in control of it. Um, and it's not just a difference between Facebook and Twitter. I mean, that could really happen anywhere. But uh, I think it's important to note that anything you put out there can just be put in an entirely different context and it might have a completely different meaning. Mm-hmm. People won't know when you're joking. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of stuff is the kind of thing that Bree was talking about earlier where people end up with a lot of the non-criminal consequences mm-hmm. like losing scholarships or getting in trouble with their employer or something. It's time for the definition of the day. Let's talk about Miranda warnings. I think that term gets thrown around a lot, and we're definitely used to it as criminal defense attorneys, but people walking down the street, I don't... 
I don't know, maybe they know it very well. Maybe they have no idea what the heck it means. They've just heard it so many times right. in, in cop shows. What are the Miranda warnings? So uh, the Miranda warnings are the, um, well, it's, it's a, it refers to the police notifying a person of their protections by the Bill of Rights, and specifically their protections under the Fifth and Sixth Amendment. The most important ones are, um, in in this context, are the right to uh, not be compelled to incriminate yourself, so the government can't force you to make a confession, and the right to have an attorney. Um, so that with some limitations means you can have an attorney present at every important stage, critical stage in a criminal proceeding. The Miranda warnings or the Miranda rights, people, like you said, are mostly familiar from cop shows and the way you see it there, they'll arrest somebody, they'll make some kind of joke and then they'll say, you have the right to remain silent, everything you say can and will be used against you, you have the right to an attorney, if you can't afford an attorney, one will be provided to you by the state and on and on. Um, those are essentially the the Miranda rights, the Miranda warnings, but they're not usually given at the time of arrest. Right. The police really, the way they do it, they have these little cards and they read them off the cards and they really make it seem like it's some, um, you know, insurance contract or the yeah. kind of thing that you don't really need to bother yourself with. Like you're buying a car and these are just the little details that management has to put in to cover right. themselves. So they want you to kind of zone out while they're reading them. But what the what the warning is supposed to do, it's supposed to let you know, I'm a cop, I'm gonna use whatever you say and put it in whatever context I want uh, and you should think twice about talking to me. Mm -hmm. Now, police don't have to read you the Miranda rights and Miranda warnings at all unless they're trying to get you to say something. Um, so if you're not formally in custody and they're not actually asking you to say anything, they don't have to say them. They could even put you in custody and just sort of wait for you to talk. Right. Uh, so that's, that's what you're looking at here is that... Um, Really, it only protects you if you were put in a position by the cops where you were in custody, means you're not free to leave, mm -hmm. and uh, the cops are trying to get you to say something. Otherwise, they really don't have a, a protection for you. Mm -hmm. And um, if you think that your Miranda rights were violated, probably the way you're going to realize that is that you spoke to the cops and you felt like, what happened? Mm -hmm. I wish I hadn't done that. Uh, and that's because the cops just have this kind of power where people just feel like they are going to be in less trouble if they sort of come clean and yeah. say things. And even if you're not guilty of the thing that they think you're guilty of, people feel this pressure to just say things to police and they think mm -hmm. they're going to feel better if they just say things to police and then those things end up getting used however the police want to use them mm -hmm. so um when they read you your miranda rights you should listen <laughs> and take a beat <laughs> mm -hmm. and decide if probably you should just wait uh to talk to somebody that knows something before mm -hmm. talking to the police because they're not there to protect your rights no um, they're and there they to can get... lie to you too about what's going on. So like you said, you know, people think that, oh, if I just talk to the police, it might be lesser punishment. Sometimes police tell you that, and it's not true. 
Right, and you can't lie to police, right. but they can lie to you. So remember that when yeah. you're talking. <laughs> and I think that's a tough pill for people to swallow as we're raised in a society where we're taught to believe in law and order. And we're taught to believe that what police officers tell you is what you need to do. Um, but, you know, for better or for worse, that's not necessarily true. Right. And the, the important thing about Miranda rights, too, I think a lot of people... Um, think that if their Miranda rights are violated, they can't be charged with a crime or charges will just be dropped against them or whatever. That's not true. All the Miranda rights do. So it's it's a judge-made rule. So judges decided, uh, you know, about 50 years ago, judges decided that we would be better off if cops had to tell people who were in custody that they didn't have to give a statement unless they heard these rights first. Mm -hmm. um, if the police violate that, what that means is that any statement they get from you can be suppressed. But that's it. It yeah. doesn't mean they're going to drop all the charges against you. It doesn't mean you're off the hook mm -hmm. or it doesn't mean that you're no longer under arrest. It just means that any statement they compelled from you without first giving you this warning can't be used. Right. So it's important to keep that in mind too. Let's get to know Jorge Fergoso. So Jorge, a lot of attorneys read pretty much all day at their jobs. And I will say that when I get home, sometimes I'm not necessarily motivated to read for fun. <laughs> but that is not you. You really enjoy reading for fun. I do like reading for fun. And I do a lot of audiobooks because since I have a daughter, uh, mm -hmm. Time is short, and I'm always cleaning the house or doing something to pick up after her. So um, we also do a lot of driving around, mm -hmm. go to different court appearances, and that's a good time to get some some reading in. Um, but yes, I've, reading has always been a, a, a big part of my life and my wife's life as well. Um, she's a librarian, and she's now the director of a library that she started leading shortly before the pandemic. Yeah. So it's been, it's been a lot, um, but she is really committed to what she does. She's really devoted to the mission of um, having a space for the community mm -hmm. where a lot of different things can happen. They do everything from children's story time to help people find jobs to just give people a place to be for a little while to, you know, having teenagers have a safe place to go do their work together. Yeah. Or, or whatever so there's there's a lot going on with the library and um, yeah that's always been a big part of our lives yeah so a couple of questions come to mind first one being what is a book that you've read or listened to lately that you just think is really outstanding sure I think uh, most recently I listened to um, the murderer and the journalist this okay. is by Janet Malcolm Janet Malcolm um, is a very well-regarded nonfiction writer. Uh, some think the best of her generation. She passed away a few weeks ago, and shortly after she passed away, um, I read this book. It's from the 90s, and um, it was really fascinating. She, um, she, wrote, she wrote about a trial that was uh, based on another trial, <laughs> Um, of a doctor who was convicted of murdering his wife. And so 
the doctor, uh, the doctor's wife was murdered, and then he was tried about eight years later. And during the trial, he brought on a nonfiction writer to essentially write a book about the trial. Huh. It was a, about a two or three week trial. Um, and it seems like the writer came in intending to write kind of a favorable book. Mm-hmm. And then after the conviction and after the few years he spent writing the book, uh, the book came out and it was very unfavorable to to the doctor. And uh, the doctor sued the writer oh based on false representations that he had made uh, in the course of writing the book. Mm-hmm. And so the, the book that I read, which is about this incident, yeah. is kind of uh, an exploration of, of storytelling and who you pretend to be when you tell people stories and who you make them out to be and for what purpose. So there's a couple of lawyers that feature prominently into this and how they represent their their clients at trial, but then also writers and the mission of the writer. And so I thought it was I thought it was a really interesting um, just kind of discourse on storytelling and what it is to create a character from a real person, which is a lot of what we do as lawyers. So I thought that was really fascinating and I would very much recommend it. I will add it to my list. Well, thank you, Jorge, so much for taking the time to sit down with us. Uh, Like I said, the moral of the story is First Amendment is a lot of blurred lines. Right, and fuck cheerleading. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks, Jorge. Bye-bye. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for another episode of Zealous. This series is brought to you by Gimbel, Riley, Garen, and Brown, located in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. If you think you need a lawyer, contact us at grgblaw.com. Tune in for our next episode where we talk about some important things to know when you're buying and selling real estate with Jacqueline Kelly and Russell Carnes. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode of Zealous.